I'm going to ask you to stand one more time, and I'm going to read the teaching text this morning because I don't get to do this very often. So, 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. When this began, I was getting to come to Radiant Tulare every week, and now I'm here twice a year. And as I drove over, I was lamenting that and celebrating that. And some of the reasons I'm not here on a weekly basis have to do with just logistics of you used to meet in the evenings, so it was possible for me to be here. But... The reality is, is that I'm not here on a weekly basis, and, and you need to hear this loud and clear. You have unbelievable leadership in this house. And it's, yeah, it's worth applauding. You, I mean, that is, I am talking about Jared and Rachel and Mark and Kathleen, but I'm talking about all the elders and the deacons uh, in this house. Um, you're, you're wise to bring your soul and your family into this place because of the way that they uh, lead and shepherd the flock. So I come each time fully expecting this church to grow, fully expecting this church to grow and God to continue to add to this house um, because of the leadership that's here. So I, I often grieve not seeing the, the Turners and Condies in particular on a weekly basis. The only thing that helps me with not seeing them is being here and getting to see you, seeing this church grow as a result of them stepping out and building a community in here. So, um, yeah, just, it's good. It reminds me why we're doing this. There's some weeks where I'm like, why don't I see Jared more? And, and this is one of those days where I'm like, oh, this is why. And this is good. And I, I remind myself, I'm into this. Like, not all goodbyes are bad goodbyes. So, uh, how's First John going? Yeah, it's going good for us, too. Uh, we are approaching the sin part, you know, which is a little more challenging. So, I'll ask you again at the end of the sermon how it's going. Um, but last week, uh, the Apostle John shared his story, his testimony concerning Jesus. He was like, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I touched. Um, so I'm telling you the truth, and you can trust me with my story. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, but more importantly, he was one of the three. There was a group within the group. There were uh, favorites, maybe. 
Um, he was one of the last ones left at the scene of the crucifixion and one of the first ones to visit the empty grave. So he's one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. So John refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. That's, so he, what he's saying here is, I wasn't just a part of the 12. I wasn't just a part of the three. I'm the one. I'm the one Jesus loved. And in doing that, no one else calls him that, by the way. None of the other disciples say that. That's a nickname that he gave himself, which is a violation of how nicknames work. You can't give yourself a nickname, right? You don't tell people what to call you, right? When I was... Um, the first job I ever had was at the Visalia Mall, and I was the mascot for Red Robin. I was the bird. And... Uh, I was, was the bird. I lost that job uh, by flipping the bird in the bird suit. <laughs> so my manager called me in and said, we got a report that you were flipping someone off in the bird suit. Is that, that's not true, is it? And I had to say, that was true. Someone had spit on me, uh, and I just was like, that's it, right? Okay, so I lost my job as the bird. I was at the very bottom of the Visalia Mall food chain. And after that, I got a job at the surf shop. There was only one. And it's hard to overstate how important this place was from about 1990 to 2000. It was the surf shop. And so I went from the very bottom of the food chain to the very top. And I'm now working at the surf shop. To make it uh, more of a rags-to-riches story, when I get to the surf shop, there's some older guys that I, I really uh, look up to. I now wonder why I looked up to them. Have you ever that ever done for you? Um, I've also got some family in New Orleans who I just love, and I'm a lifelong Saints fan. And, and uh, you know, my mom would be like, hey, we're not, not going to grow up to be like those guys, right? Those guys who are really good at darts and have a whole separate fridge for their beer and aren't married in their 50s. And I was like, no, I want to be just like them, you know. She'd be like, please don't. Please don't look up to these guys. Well, this was some of the guys at the, at the surf shop. I looked up to them. They had tattoos. Um, and uh, they started, they said, we're going to call you T-Money. And I mean, I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> I was being spit upon in a bird suit. Now I'm T-Money, working at the surf shop. And I've, I've arrived. Well, <clears throat> so I go to my own group of friends, and I say to my own group of friends, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go by T-Money from here on out, you know? And my friends are like, yeah, probably not. Those words are never going to come out of my mouth. I will never call you that, you know? Because I what? I violated one of the rules of nicknames. You don't tell people to call you the Fonz. Someone gives you that nickname, right? Well, John would say, no. No, no, no. I'm going with what Jesus said of me, and I'm going to live into what he says uh, about me. This is John's gospel record. We're studying letters that he wrote to churches later in his life. But this is his gospel record, his record of the life and teachings and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's John chapter 20. 
Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. T money. And he said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. Again, this is John. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, who's that? That's John. He outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came, second time, following him, just wanting to reinforce that he was beaten a foot race. And he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. If Jesus can make his bed when he gets up out of the grave, you can make yours. Then the other disciple, is that John? Third time, who had reached the tomb first, went in, and he saw and he believed. You can tell just by reading this that he's the last living disciple. There's no one here to challenge this and be like, why repeatedly did you say you were faster than the rest of the disciples? So three times in this text, the word saw appears. The first two times, the word saw just means notice. The last time it says he saw and believed, it's a different word being used there. It means he comprehended. It means it clicked. And isn't that like us? Often we go through life and we're seeing things, we're noticing things, and then all of a sudden we connect the dots. And we're like, oh. Another word that John uses for this is made manifest. It became clear. It became apparent. It became obvious to him what had taken place. And now, even in 1 John, he's sharing the gospel. He's sharing this is the event. This is what happened in human history. This is what it achieved for us. And these are the implications for how we now live as the community of believers. And these guys went out throughout the whole known world teaching and proclaiming the gospel. So last week, I believe it was Mark. Did you talk last week, Mark? Okay, Mark, I hope, talked about the trustworthiness of the apostles' witness and how their testimony when believed, created a community that continues to this day. That was it? That was the message, kind of? Okay. We'll debrief that later, Mark. Um, so we're, we were invited by the first four verses by the Apostle John to receive his report and then enjoy fellowship with not just him and the apostles, he throws in. Just to let you know, when you join our team, you join the team of God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. Just throwing that in as a perk. And many a times when we're offered fellowship with God, the question that comes up for me and probably the question that comes up for you is that how can we have fellowship like the apostles had fellowship when God's not here or physically present in the way that he was for them. Did anyone have that come up? Like exactly how do we get on together when things just don't seem as physical as they were for the disciples? How will we experience him 
on a regular basis? What does it look like to walk with him when we're not physically walking with him? These guys had such a leg up. But that's not the question that John's actually setting out to answer. The question John is setting out to answer is this. How can we have fellowship with God if he's completely holy? Not, if he's not here, how will we walk together? He's saying if God is completely holy, how will we walk together? We, we who've seen and said some dark things. We who've seen and experienced some dark days. We who actually prefer the darkness. We hide often and don't want to be exposed by his light. How will we, who know darkness, dwell with him who has no darkness at all? That's what he's trying to help us with. God is light. Not God is a light. God is light. It is his essence. And this is a reference to his purity in the context here. It's a reference to his holiness, which is he's just completely separate. He's completely other. His perfection, his moral perfection. And certainly holiness is more than moral perfection, but it's not less. There's no stain. There's no blemish. There's nothing unjust that goes on with him. How will we walk with him? We who experience darkness, how will we have fellowship with the God who it says in 1 Timothy 6.16, he alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or, by the way, can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That doesn't sound like the profile of someone you're just going to click with, does it? My wife will sometimes show me a profile and she'll be like, oh, this gal, she's got five daughters too. And it, the idea is we're just going to click. She'll show me a profile and say, oh, this person's a pastor's wife too, and she gets it. She's going to get me and we're going to connect. Oh, this person loves Parks and Rec and I love Parks and Rec and we're just going to click. We don't read 1 Timothy 6.16 and go, I think, I think we're just going to get on so well together. I mean, I read that and you should be thinking, Houston, we have like a major problem here. How will we who dwell in darkness, who prefer darkness, who've done dark things, dwell with him who is in unapproachable light? John wants us to recognize the blackness, not just the blackness that's all around us, but the blackness that's inside of us. And that comes only as we stare intently into his perfect light. If you're pulling your comps horizontally, getting your property value by looking to the right and left, you're like, I'm better than that guy. I mean, I'm not perfect, but that guy? You start to pull your comps vertically, and you've got, you've got trouble. Have you guys ever read Isaiah? He's got a huge book in the middle of your Bible full of prophecies, and he was quite a prophet. And as most prophets do, he pronounced woes on people. <laughs> and so the first, his book starts six chapters of him going, woe to you. I mean, he's doing what prophets do. Woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you over there. Then in chapter 6, God shows up. What does Isaiah start screaming? Woe to me. Woe to my mouth. 
woe to my mouth. You, you who dwell in unapproachable light, I'm not going to be able to walk forward with you in this type of darkness. Something's going to have to give. Before we find out that God is love, which we'll find out in chapter 4 of 1 John. 1 John will tell us also God is love. But before we find out that God is love, we're told that God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. And I think the ordering of this is very significant, not just for this church in Ephesus or the group, region of churches there in Turkey. This is important for our culture and our moment here today, that you know that God is light before you find out that God is love. Okay? Because it's God's holiness that shows us our unholiness that causes the question to arise, how is he going to deal with us? How is he going to deal with us? And then on the back of that bad news comes the good news. He's just, he's kind, he's loving, he's merciful. And you're like, oh, thank God, because Houston, we had a problem down here. Until we grasp our sinfulness and then his transcendence, his nearness doesn't mean all that it should to us. Does that make sense? If, 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 if God's a God of love, you've heard, oh, I heard that before, and if you're lovable, you're a good guy, then why wouldn't he come near? If you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like you, then God is just going to be one of those people who likes you, right? Let me say it this way. When we understand the darkness of our own hearts and then understand the brilliance of his light, then we rejoice in the fellowship that was made possible by his kindness. When we spot the gap, when we mind the gap, then we start getting really grateful. Tim Keller said it this way, contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. But Christians should reverse that, allowing the Bible to examine us looking for things God can't accept. Then the sweet grace offered, the beauty of his love will mean something to you. Okay, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. Remember, God is the main character of John's book. Even as he sets forth tests to expose who's a real and who's a bogus believer, that's not the point of this book. The point of this book is to teach us about God first and foremost. And that's where John starts. And this is where he starts. He's called a theologian, John is, not just because he's so God-focused, but also because of the way he brings definition and clarity to really difficult concepts. Hopefully that's what our theologians uh, do. There are 192 different descriptive names for God in the Bible. There's 152 metaphorical titles and designations given to God in the Bible. What does John go with? What does he choose? There's a lot to choose from to describe God. What does he choose? Light. And I love that because that makes sense here and that makes sense for our kids who are learning about God in the classrooms next to us. 
God is light. And so much is being said when John says God is light. What is he saying when he says God is light and in him there's no darkness at all? In what way is God light is the way we can ask it. Well, he enables vision, doesn't he? We've all experienced that perspective that's come. He produces growth like life, like light does. He reveals beauty and color like light does. He exposes blemishes and darkness scatters in the presence of light. It guides travelers. It warms the earth. Come on, we could just keep going because God's light. And our kids right next door could keep going as well, describing who God is. And in some sense, every one of those things is true about God. But here's what John, I think, means. When John says light, he's saying God is perfectly pure. In him there's no evil at all. Not an ounce of evil. John is fighting in this church a deception. That deception is what? A false teaching present in this church that John's warring with his words is what? Mark, did you go over this? I, I'm still committed to the tremendous leadership of this house. <laughs> Gnosticism. Gnosticism, the beginnings of Gnosticism, is what he's up against. He did? Okay. Well, if he didn't use that word, he probably used this description. It was a sort of build-your-own spirituality, part pagan, part Persian, part Judaism, part Christianity, part Greek philosophy, so it's fluid. It's very hard to nail down. Sound familiar? Okay, the big idea, when you hear Gnosticism, you should think the body's bad, matter doesn't matter, the physical is inferior, and the spiritual is superior. Mark Sayers, in a book called Disappearing Church, which I would recommend, says this is the key basic beliefs of Gnosticism. One, the world of time, space, and matter in which we live is inferior. Number two, the world is inferior because it has been created by an inferior and possibly evil God. Number three, beyond our world and the inferior God, there's a sublime place to which we must progress. Let's leave behind these old ancient ideas of religion. We can progress to the sublime place when we discover the divine spark within ourselves. Number five, truth is found in the individual. We must look inside to find our true self. Number six, we can, under our own steam, progress to the sublime place through knowledge. In the Greek, gnosis. We escape the inferior world by finding hidden pieces of knowledge in the world and in ourselves. What is John saying? No darkness at all. Not an ounce of evil can be found in this good God who created a good creation. It is the hands of men who messed this thing up. In the Greek here, this is like a double negative. He's saying no darkness, none. God is light, no darkness, none. He goes on to talk about what it means to live in that light, to walk. Like again, Houston, we've got a problem. How are we going to walk with this guy? Um, and he will for the next couple weeks. You'll get to unpack this. But he says three things here that are being said uh, in the community there, in the church, and still to this day in this church. Hopefully, as you read those seven, six things that mark Gnosticism, 
that you're going, oh, the Bible might have something to say to us today. Three things the church was saying then, three things the church is saying now. The first is found in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And you're not practicing the truth. This is the hypocrite. There's grace for that. What does it mean to walk in darkness? It's a little bit different than to stumble in darkness. To walk in darkness is to have a habit of sin and a pattern of moving forward in it. It means that you continue down that road. Not that you trip or stumble along the way and continue to follow him. It's that you have a happy habit of sin in your life, yet you're saying, I walk with God. John says, that guy, that gal, they're lying. And I know when I talk this way about the hypocrite, you might have somebody come to mind. But let's be honest. We all know what it is to honor God with our lips and have our lives be far from him. So maybe let's start here. Our attitudes towards sin, our actions, right? We should be distinguishable from the world. The second thing that's being said in this church and the second thing that's being said in the church is that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is the religious person. The religious person who has a consistent pattern of praying this prayer, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. A man who claimed to be without sin confronted Charles Spurgeon, who's a great Baptist uh, preacher in the 1800s in, in England. And Spurgeon was so intrigued by this guy who claimed to be uh, without sin, because Spurgeon was a Baptist. So he invited the man without sin over for dinner. And he heard the man out. The man explained his stance. Spurgeon stood up from his chair, picked up his glass of water, and he threw it in the man's face. And you can guess that the perfect man immediately showed some imperfections. Got angry, got loud, crossed the line of courtesy. Spurgeon said, oh, you see, the old man within is not as dead as you claim. He had simply fainted, and I have revived him with but a glass of water. You're kidding yourself if you say you have no sin. Luke 18, Jesus speaks this parable and he does so to people who were confessing the sins of others and rehearsing their own righteousness. This is what he says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. How good are we at confessing the sins of others? Your round-the-clock news channel confesses the sins of others 
while concealing and covering up their own. How good are you at confessing the sins of others and then rehearsing your own righteousness? After all I've done for you, you know, like it's like you've done it all right. And they just don't get it. And I just started as I read this to think to myself, what if we were as good at confessing our sins as we were at confessing the sins of others? What if we were as good as a church at reciting, rehearsing his righteousness and not our own? I don't, I, I don't even know what to do with that. Third thing, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The only person that I know, and there aren't many, that would say with a straight face, I have not sinned, would be the person who is a relativist and just denies the category altogether. That the idea of sin is a social construct. And so they would just deny the category altogether with a line that says something like, if it's right for you, that's good for you. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's right for me. And what's wrong for you is not necessarily wrong for me because truth is not absolute. It's actually relative. So right and wrong have been constructed by cultures and can't be known for sure. And so don't try to peg me with your categories because I don't think the categories count. And it says that that person denies the word of God, which actually reveals an absolute moral truth. Okay? So, there's a couple alternatives to this. Hopefully you found yourself in all three of those. Hopefully you found yourself going like, yeah, there's a little bit of hypocrite in me. Saying there's grace for that. And just, I just keep cruising. And there's a little bit of Pharisee in me. I thank you that I'm not like that. And there's a little bit of a relativist in me going, who can know for sure anyways? Tomato, tomato. There's a couple other options for us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we can have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's, that's something we can do. So if you conceal your sin, it says that you're actually going to miss out on two things here. If you continue to hide your sin, you'll continue to miss out on connection and cleansing. The person that confesses is so worried about rejection, but we're promised fellowship and cleansing. James 5.16 says it this way, Therefore confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you can be healed. And we all can tell a story because sin breaks relationship. And we can all tell a story of coming forward and confessing our sin and then experiencing healing. Experiencing the cleansing that comes from God and connection with others. In fact, the community's deepened by that confession. You fear you're going to be isolated, that you'll be removed. And you can probably also tell a story of coming forward and confessing your sin and someone quickly going, oh God. You know, you can tell that story probably. But might I, uh, I don't know, just coach you in saying it can be pretty uncomfortable if someone's themselves covering their sin for you to uncover yours in their presence. It'll remind them of the things they haven't dealt with, of the things that they're 
wanting to ignore. And so their backpedaling from you might have nothing to do with you, might actually have to do uh, with them. Here's another thing in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And at this point, you should be saying, "Uh uh-oh. Because justice is getting what we deserve. So you should read this and be like, faithful and just. Oh, no. You know? Here's the good news. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess, he'll be faithful and just to forgive. How can someone be just and forgive? We think of uh, forgiveness as saying no big deal. We think of forgiveness as like winking. You get a pass. That's not actually what forgiveness is. And if you've ever forgiven, you know this. It's not exactly winking at something. It's costly. It costs us to release somebody of the debts that they owe us. Romans 3 says, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God paid the debt that we owe so that he can be both just judge and the one who justifies us and can forgive sins. If we confess our sins, he can be faithful and just and forgive us our sins because he paid for those debts. Last verse before I leave you. Just a question. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Do you confess or do you conceal? Do you confess the sins of others and conceal your own? Or do you cover over in love a multitude of sins and then confess your own? I want to give you some pastoral advice for confession because we're going to be, as a radiant church, obedient to the word of God. Yeah? So we're going to do this. We're going to have a regular habit of confessing our sins so that we can walk with God and stay in step with him. The first piece of just advice for those of us who are going to confess, who's going to confess? That guy? No, 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 this guy. Like, we're going to do this is to go big and confess your sin one to another. So not just between you and God, which is common for me to hear. Well, I already, we already dealt with that before God. Confess your sin one to another because the healing of shame happens in community. And sometimes we need an, an ambassador of Christ, an advocate on Christ who speaks the word of the Lord to us and over us, especially if we're dealing with deep, dark regret. So have a safe friend for sure. Have a trusted pack. Have that. But let me tell you this. If you aren't scared and you're not nervous, you're doing it wrong or you're probably running around with the wrong people who are just going to pet your sin. You should be scared. It should require you to go big. And there should be a courage that rises up in you. It should be uncomfortable. And let me tell you, the risk is right. 
Now, the person you sinned against might not be the first person you confess to, but eventually, I think in order to be right with that person, you're going to have to confess to them. So they might not be the first person, the initial person you go to with your confession, but they probably need to be eventually a person that you go to. So you may need to go to that boss. You might need to go to that spouse. You might need to go to that friend. You might need to go to them. That might not, again, that might not be the first step, but I think if we're to be, really be healed of the shame that we carry, I think it will be an eventual step. The second thing I want to say to you is go small. Go really small. Before a major fall, there's a hundred, thousands, little steps and thoughts. Confess the small stuff. Don't just wait for a big fall. I love it when I confess things to people and they look at me and they're like, that's not a big deal. And I'm like, yeah, but it was going to become a really big deal. You bury that, you continue in that. And that's going to become a very big thing. And you're going to have to go big. So before you have to go big, go really small. Don't buy the, the Titanic myth is the myth that we buy. If you remember, the Titanic had a compartmentalized hole. So the idea is I can spring a leak here and take on water and it's not going to affect the rest of the ship. Every ocean, every boat at the bottom of the ocean tells that story. I'll take on a little water here and it won't affect the rest of my life. It's a lie. And before sin destroys, it deceives. That's a deception. So we, even when we spring a small leak, we go, this small leak is going to spill over into other compartments of my life and we'll sink this ship. And so that's why I'm taking a strong stand. Your sin right now is private. It is not personal at all. It's affecting your worship, your relationship with God, and your relationship with others. Confess it when it's small. I would say go often, meaning like practice consistent confession. I'm one of those guys who like works out once a year and it's worthless, you know. <laughs> Don't wait for like every leap year to confess your sin. Just be in a habit or a practice of it, right? You're like, I did that when I got saved at a Carmen concert in the 1980s. <laughs> well, it's time to ante up again. So... Uh, the fourth thing is to get specific, is to get real specific. So often, because we're trying to save face, I watch people confess. I confess. Sorry, I watch people. You people. I'm so thankful I'm not like you. Um, I watch people confess, and they're like, hey, I'm struggling. And you're like, oh, okay. And it's like, pray for me for my... Uh, what did you call it in church when you needed a prayer request, but you didn't? My unspokens. Pray for my unspoken sin, you know? And you're like, man, what did, I guarantee the person makes up something way worse than what you actually did. <laughs> but I'm just so, I think, I think as friends, we should push one another. So when someone's like, you know, uh, pray for me, I'm struggling. And you're like, struggling with what? And they're like, you know. And you're like, no, I don't know. I, I really don't know, you know. And they're like, you know, guy stuff. And you're like, guy stuff? What exactly is guy stuff? Like, what's going on? You know, the stuff that every red-blooded, you know, guy struggles with, you know. And it's like, no, no way, no way. What are you looking at? What are you thinking? What is going on in your heart? You need to share that. Not because your friends need the gory details. They don't. You need freedom. 
And if you cover your sin and you don't get specific and you leave there, the enemy is on your heels. And you know what he's saying to you as the accuser? He's saying if they really knew what you really did, they wouldn't have extended that grace towards you. And there is no healing. So we come out with it so that you're no longer harassed by the person who keeps throwing it in your face. That's why we do it. And then lastly, you should get honest about your honesty. I think um, it's true in the church that people think that honesty is inherently good. So this comes up when confession happens and you're like, what? I was just being honest. Listen, you can be honest for a number of reasons. You can be honest to manipulate. You can be honest to hurt somebody. Or you can be honest for the sake of cleansing and connection. And people know the difference immediately. And so you should go, okay, I'm getting ready to be honest. But am I being honest so that my spouse will confess what they did? Like I'm actually just getting out there to start the party because they're the people who need to party. So I'm sorry for what I did. And then are you sorry for maybe something that you did that actually wrecked this? It's only, we can laugh or cry. You can laugh or cry about that one. The number one compliment we get in Visalia, and I would guess it's the same in Tulare, but people come to Radiant and they say, I love how real it is. I love how transparent it is. Um, I love that it's authentic. <laughs> That's probably the number one compliment. Maybe. Okay. You have a role in creating that culture, not three people who stand up here and confess their sin. Would you help us? Would you help us create a community where people can prosper because they don't conceal their sin? Would you help us build a culture of grace? Would you help us build a place where people are genuinely radiant and never covered with shame? Never covered with shame. You've got a role. You can help us. If you love this, buy in on this. And don't, I just love how Jared gets up there and confesses his sin. It makes me feel so much better. Come on. Let's all make war on our pride. Let's all make war on our pride. Let's all humble ourselves. Would you stand with me? There's going to be a ministry team. You, you can go uh, right now. Like, I'm, not, I'm not ready, Trav. I don't, you're as ready as you're ever going to be, you know? Like there's just not a good time. Um, so people love to stand with you and cover you, pray for you. The elements will be available. You can come to the table and remember that Christ was broken so that we could become whole. That his blood was spilt so that we could be cleansed and washed. And don't make it just a ritual. Let's pair that with confession. Bringing our hearts before him and receiving prayer from others. Lord, I thank you for what you're building here. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would continue your work. And that we would fight sin. That we wouldn't cozy up to it. We wouldn't excuse it. We wouldn't justify it. We would confess it. 
and receive your righteousness. I pray right now courage over my brothers and sisters. We renounce the enemy's schemes to condemn and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and convict. Bring clarity. Amen. Come forward, receive prayer, receive the elements.